We've just finished our, uh, our seven part, I think it was, series on uh, 1 Thessalonians. How did you find that? Is it all right? It's, it's not a familiar letter to many of us, really. It's good to dive deep into parts of the Bible that we otherwise, otherwise ignore. Not cause necessarily because we choose to, just because we kind of forget it's there and we keep focusing on the popular parts. We've got to be careful sometimes. It's good to take our way through a letter that helps us uh, see things from a new and a fresh perspective. It talks about the gospel. It talks, talks about idols. That's something we're going to be returning to from next week. We're going to start a new series looking through the book of Exodus. Story of the Israelites going through Exodus. We spent two years going through Genesis. Do you remember that? Now we're going to spend eight weeks going through Exodus. But this will be, have a different feel to it. Um, the whole subject of idols will come up again. Idols are something that basically sits on the throne of your heart more than God. We can take his place. We can usurp him, turf him out and put something else in its place that we feel, that we believe will give us contentment, give us pleasure, give us satisfaction. And uh, idols will come up again from next week onwards. We're going to be talking about places in our heart that when we follow the Israelites' journey through leaving the place of Egypt, slavery in Egypt into the promised land, there are points, eight points along the way where we recognise this is us in our lives, both in the gospel and coming to Christ for the first time, and also in our lives subsequently in different areas. It's, a, it's based on a book, I'll explain more next week, but that's what we're going to be doing. It's been a really, really helpful series and quite excited about it. But also in this last series in Thessalonians, we've also looked about complacency and what drives us, haven't we? And all throughout, there's been lots of opportunity for questions to uh, kind of do a checkup on our spiritual health, if you like, on our obedience, on our discipleship, on our discipline and self-discipline as well. And the whole, the kind of subject of uh, reflective practice, that phrase, has been popping up more and more over recent years, particularly in the workplace. Reflective practice is a really helpful means of understanding where you're at as an employee, for example, or a volunteer, and also where you need to grow, where you're not growing, where you should be growing, and so on and so forth. But it's not just a, a recent a modern invention. Of course, the Bible gets there first in a lot of things. It's throughout the Bible as well. You see in 1 Timothy 4, verse 16, it says, Keep a close watch on yourself. Who does that? Seriously, here, do we keep a close watch on ourselves? It's a good question to ask. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourself. Not multiple choice, but test yourself. Do you ever give yourself an MOT check? Do you do that on a regular basis? Do you ever look at your diary and reflect on your balance of rhythm, uh, rhythm of uh, rest and work, for example? How much time you spend with the Lord? How much time you spend with the church? How much time you spend with people who don't know him? Just getting the balance of a healthy, a kind of holistic view of a Christian life, what it means to be one of his children. It's always good to take a pause and just reflect on where you're at. Even just practical things, how well you're eating, exercise, amount of sleep, things like that. Do you ever do that? Another means is uh, journaling. I've just started journaling. I've been putting it off for years. But just recently, past couple of months or so, I found it hugely invaluable. Just at 10.30 at night, my phone buzzes. Bzzz, do your journal. And all I do, just for a few minutes, I'll just jot down, looking back on the, uh, on the day, what's made me mad, what's made me sad, and what's made me glad. It's really, it really takes a few minutes, less than that even sometimes. What's made you mad, what's made you sad, what's made you glad? And over a period of time, you start to, start to spot patterns, things that particularly get you down, particularly get you angry, or you particularly delight in. Most of mine have been things that have made me glad. I'm that kind of half glass half full kind of person. I think you know that now. But actually, there, there can be, if you're reflective enough, you start to realise all the things that made you glad aren't necessarily deep-seated things. They can be frivolous things. 
And actually, there's a warning sign to me that things that make me glad aren't necessarily important, but I think they are. It's a really helpful way of just doing a bit of reflective practice, mad, sad, and glad. Other things, questions have come up recently in the Thessalonians series about asking yourself, am I following his commands? Am I following his commands? Am I committed to the church? Am I on mission? Am I going into all the world to make disciples, teaching them to obey? Am I doing that? Am I involved in that? Am I helping the poor? Am I rolling my sleeves up? Am I loving my neighbour? Are we loving one another? Questions we can ask ourselves. Another question that came up over recent weeks is, where do my thoughts wander when my brain's in neutral? It's a really helpful understanding of what might drive us, what might sit on the throne of our hearts sometimes. But there's another question I'd like to ask today, which isn't, it's a bit more of a surprise when you actually ask it, but then realise how revealing it is. Where does my treasure reside? If your treasure's been coming up today, and you'll find out why worship time is such a, bears such a relevance later on. But the question, where does my treasure reside, is a question we're going to look at this morning. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. Luke 12, 32, just going to read those three verses up to 34, up to under that section where our translations have segregated it a little bit for us. Luke 12, 32. Says, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to us as followers of Christ. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me just pray. Lord, I thank you that we have your word. I thank you that we have your revelation for us to dwell upon, to, to uh, feast upon. And Lord, I just pray that we don't just do that out of duty or we do it um, just so we can tick a box, but we do it because it's a living word. That this isn't just words on a page. This is your living word to us today, your amazing revelation of you and your son, what your Holy Spirit's doing. And Lord, as we just hear these few words this morning, Lord, I pray it will truly be alive in us. The breath of God that Fred was praying will be alive in us, stirring something up in each of us, mustering something up for us. That it's not in our energies and us stirring stuff up, but you at work in us. Lord, may we be truly reflective enough to recognise what it is you're saying. That we'll be open to your voice. May you challenge us, provoke us where needed, that we might grow deeper into you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, money. There are different topics sometimes that we need to preach on. We go through books of the Bible. It's a really healthy way because it means you don't end up um, avoiding things, topics you'd rather not talk on. You just work your way through a book and you get confronted with stuff you've then got to preach on. It's good. It's helpful. Sometimes certain subjects need to come up that we don't get a chance to touch on very often about marriage and singleness and, and sex and humanity, what it means to be human. We even done that earlier this year, didn't we? And uh, one subject that needs to get preached on every now and again is money. It's a big thing in our lives, isn't it? We need to talk about it, and we haven't spoken on it explicitly. It's come mentioned in passing in different sermons, but we haven't spent a morning on money. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about treasure. I'll be up front. There is no gift day coming up. Okay, let me just relax. Is there no hidden agenda here other than the fact that we need to talk about money and we haven't talked about it for a while? I'll be honest with you, our 
bank account as a church is kind of semi on a line. It's not brilliant. It's not great. It's okay. But it's just okay. We're not asking for more money, but I will say, if we really feel we need to move, and the general consensus here is time has come to move, and we need a bigger plant pot for the plant to keep growing, or the bigger shoe, that's going to cost us more money. Just being aware. The vision's exciting. God's doing something amongst us, but he might ask a little bit more of us in the future. But at the moment, nothing's coming up. Just be aware of that. Just listen and see what God says about the now. Don't worry about the future, as you'll find out a bit more in a minute. Okay? I'm going to talk about lots of T's. I'm going to talk about tomorrow. I'm going to talk about treasure. I'm going to talk about trust, and then the true treasure. I'm going to talk about tomorrow, treasure, trust, and then conclude on the true treasure. So first of all, tomorrow. Why is Jesus saying these words? Why is he going, fear not, little flock? Don't worry about it. Sell everything. Get many money bags that don't, don't corrode, don't get eaten up, don't go old. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Sounds like a bit of a strange aside. There is a reason why he's sharing this. And he's talking about anxiety amongst the people about tomorrow. So it's start at verse 22. Let's read the previous 10 verses. Just get an understanding of context. It's all about context, isn't it? It's all about context. Ask why he's saying these things. What stirred it up? Where's it coming from? Verse 22, and he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you put on. For life is more than food. Some people might disagree. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, he was a very great... Uh, one of the greatest kings of Israel's history, one of the wisest men on the planet, if not the wisest, in fact. And he says, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to, you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and they still do, don't they? All the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then he goes on to say, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is why he's saying, he's, he's appealing to an anxiety that shouldn't be in there amongst his people, in their hearts. It's a simple scenario, and he cuts straight to the heart. He gives reasons about why we hoard but our natural reaction to being anxious about tomorrow. Sometimes about being content for the now and making sure we can stay content. And in fact, in previous verses, he calls someone who tries to do that a fool. It's about security. Trying to make yourself secure rather than relying on him for security. It's about a fear for tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm only three months, three wage packets away from losing my house. That's a reality that hangs over all of us, and we're still here with our houses, aren't we? Sometimes things happen. I'm not saying they don't. But we can always live in a fear of a what-if, can't we? And what-ifs can destroy us and eat us up, can't they? Jesus is talking about a people that we have a desire to not go hungry or to not go without clothing. 
And yet we all know the old adage about you can't take it with you. And yet we make sure we find ways of storing it up, don't we? Or getting more. Anxiety reigns, particularly in our Western world. Anxiety about tomorrow reigns with the fear of losing a comfort zone, losing comfort. Comfort is a big, big danger for us in this country, particularly for the church. I'm getting excited that laws are changing and culture is changing and it's getting less comfortable for the church in this country. I've had a long chat this week with a few people, in fact, about this. I'm quite excited because comfort has been a big danger for the church and we've become apathetic as a result. Losing your comfort is not a bad thing, but we make it a big thing in our hearts, don't we? See, what's interesting is that when they've done surveys, they've, they've done studies, and time and time and time again, it's proven the fact that the richer you get, the less generous you become in general. It's particularly so in countries where there's an even greater rich-poor divide. In those nations, the rich are even less generous. But the richer people get, in general, the less generous they become. See, Jesus here has been talking about referring to natural answers to fear for tomorrow. You hoard. I mean, there's other things. You can, even, uh, you can even lie when it comes to filling in your tax return. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I'll, I'll keep quiet about that. It was only a little something. It won't, it won't, won't matter. But it means the tax return will be, uh, my tax bill will be a bit less. It's a temptation sometimes, certainly for some people. We can lie, we can fiddle, we can uh, cash only to avoid VAT and stuff like that. Uh, we can be the kind of people sometimes who take more than we give. Are you the first to get around in? Are you the last to get around in? Do you never offer to get around in? Were you to go to the pub? For example, if you take people out to the meal, are you, are you reticent to offer to help pay towards the bill? Are you first up? Just says something about your heart, doesn't it? I know sometimes we don't always have money in the bank. That's a bit different. But generally speaking, where's your heart at? That's what Jesus is talking about here. See, the Bible's answers to fear for tomorrow isn't just stop it. <laughs> It's more than that. He's appealing to us to recognise who is in charge. Who is in charge? His name is Father. Don't forget that. This is Dad, not a boss. This is Dad. Luke 12, verse 7, he says, Even the hairs, he knows the hairs on your head. You're worth more than sparrows, and he looks after them. I'm your dad, he's saying. Why are you worrying? And even just somewhere else in the Bible, Genesis 22, what does Abraham call... Uh, call God when at the 11th hour God provides amazing provision when he's about to give up his son as he's been asked to do suddenly there's a ram he calls God provider Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yara calls God provider he says you're provider why, why do I need to worry about tomorrow you provide this is the sort of thing the Bible in different ways and different places keeps insisting to us he doesn't say stop fearing for tomorrow he says his name's father and he's got your back. Therefore, why are you fearing for tomorrow? Don't be anxious. Jesus is not saying our needs will be ignored. Nor is he saying we can be frivolous and negligent with our money. Nor is he saying don't have savings. He's not saying that at all. He's just asking where your heart is and why you have those savings and what you do with them. He's saying be free to be generous. Don't try and hold to make sure tomorrow's okay when I've got your back anyway. He'll provide. That's about tomorrow. Let's look at what this treasure is. What does he mean by it? Because obviously we're talking about money. Is he talking about a bit more than that? See, these days, here and now, 
Western Europe, 2016, it's all about the bottom line, isn't it? It's all about credit scores, credit ratings. It's all about budgets. It's all about financial targets. The workplace is all about numbers, isn't it? All about money. And it's not just in the private industry, it's not just in small businesses or large businesses, it's not just in corporations, it's in the, in the, in the, in the state, it's in uh, public offices, it's in, it's in the NHS, it's in education, and so on and so forth. It's all about budgets and the bottom line. And as Christ follows, we need to ask ourselves, we need to, not, we need to work within that, we need to honour it in a godly manner, but we do need to ask ourselves where its authority stops. Because that can then come into the church. And even for us as elders and trustees, talking about money, we can look at the bottom line and that can prevent us from stepping in faith into what God's got, got ahead of us sometimes. We, we as the church need to not be ruled by the bottom line. It doesn't mean keep spending regardless of what's in the bank or what you haven't got. We need to honour and steward the money well. Because sometimes when he's asking us to do something, we need to be not ruled by numbers. We need to be ruled by Father who's got our back. Suddenly it's different. It's upside down, isn't it? What is treasure? A dictionary definition of treasure is something that is valued, something that is priceless, uh, uh, priceless, something that is precious, something that is highly prized. And the Bible's attitude to treasure is absolutely fascinating. Because you see, back in the day, they didn't always have money, did they? It's a slightly more recent modern invention. Cain and Abel, you see in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, Cain and Abel didn't have currency, but they did have produce and wealth, they brought the first roots of it to the Lord. There was then obviously an altercation where one's heart was in the wrong place and dealt with it in the wrong way. But it was they didn't have money in the bank to then set up a direct debit, for example, or to give to charity or whatever it was, or to give to a neighbour. But they had produce, they had wealth. It's the same thing. Treasure, something that is highly prized. They gave the first fruits of it to God. And Noah, when he and his family stepped out of the ark after 40 days of flooding. The rest of the world was completely decimated. He was then the richest man on the planet. He actually was for a while. But he had so many animals. God asked him to keep two of every unclean animal, seven of every clean. He gave one of every clean animal straight away to the Lord. That's what he did. He offered up the cream of the crop, if you like. Everything clean he gave. One of everything. Abraham when he met God's great high priest, Melchizedek. He was an intensely rich man. After spoils of war and rescue that had been going on in the previous few verses, he meets God's amazing king, highly high king priest, Melchizedek. What does he do? He gives him 10% of everything. as an honouring the Lord act. It's an act of worship. He gave him 10% of everything. It wasn't necessarily about currency. It's about producing wealth. Do you see? It's the same thing. Different but the same. So then when the law came, when God released his people from Egypt, from slavery, like we're going to find out in the next few weeks, and he presents the law to his people and he says, this is how I want you to live, to show that you're mine, and to, and to deal with the sin in the camp. This is how I want you to live. Ultimately, the law was two things. Firstly, it's a mirror to show them what they're capable of. The laws in this country, if you look at those, that's what we're all capable of. That's what the law does. It holds up a mirror to our hearts. And it was to show God's people that they couldn't live up to that standard because he's a holy God and they never could live up to that holy standard. And it, it paved the way for the second thing the law is, it's a signpost. It was pointing to the coming Messiah, to Jesus, who was the only one who could fulfill that law. And even he said, oh, I've not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. He's the only one who could, on our behalf, live the perfect life. So when he died, he's our perfect advocate before a holy God. 
So when the law came, there's a lifestyle that God expects of his people that sets the scene for where their hearts should be. And part of that was about giving the tenth of everything to the Lord, for the temple, for the priests, so they wouldn't have to work. So it releases them for their priestly, uh, their priestly job, their role, if you like, as well. It was giving back to God, giving the firstborn of everything, firstborn of their livestock. It was on top of the 10%. It was giving the firstborn of their own children as a dedication to God. It's about giving the cream of their crop, not the dregs. It's not working out. How much have I got left over? Well, I could give them 30 quid this month. No, what's the cream of your crop? Where's your heart at? And on top of that, it was also looking after the poor as well, gleaning. As Julie mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the book of Ruth, you see this lovely story about gleaning, about when they were harvesting, and if they drop anything, they'd leave it, and the poor were allowed to come and collect it for themselves. It's like giving to charity, isn't it? So that was the law. And then in Malachi 3, one of the last prophets that God spoke through before Messiah came, as we see in the Bible, just at the end of the Old Testament, God dares his people through the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Bring the full tithes. The tithe is the cream of the crop, the one-tenth. Bring the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. It's not about prosperity. It's not about prosperity gospel. It's downright dangerous. You try telling that to Chinese prisoners for their faith. They've got it wrong? Don't think so. It's not about prosperity. It's not about giving to God so you get more. You get the big mansion and the big house. No, 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 no. It's about honouring him for who he is and he has got your back because he's dead. That's what he's saying. So that's under the law. It's still about having a generous heart, isn't it? So now we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, which means Jesus has now come, he's fulfilled the law on our behalf. We don't have to live that way. Now that law should be written in our hearts in a new way, that we now live for him. And now he's asking different questions. He's not saying, you must give 10%, and if not, you're in trouble. He's saying, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? Are you generous? Are you cheerful in your giving, as we see in 2 Corinthians 9? Are you cheerful in your giving? Are you happy to give, not wondering about, well, yeah, but I was saving up for that thing. I'd rather have that than blessing from you. That's the choices we make sometimes, isn't it? All he's saying is, where's your heart? Are you reflective enough to recognise it? So I'll ask you now, where is your treasure? Is it hard to let go of? Is it prioritised to comforts in life? To entertainment? Is that what you spend most of your money on? Food and comfort? Easy life? Fun? Amusement? Security? Saving it all up? Just in case? If you're stockpiling, and I'm not saying don't have savings, please don't mishear me. Hear the heart within this. But if you're stockpiling, for example, I suggest Jesus says, Maybe he wants you to trust him, not your nationwide bank account. If you're spending your money, lots of your money on entertainment and amusement, frivolity, having fun in the now, to help you turn your brain off, supposedly. Maybe Jesus says he wants you to find your final satisfaction in him. There's something missing that's far more fundamental. 
that you're just covering up or sweeping under the carpet. If you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, it's a big one these days sometimes, isn't it? You spend your money on keeping up with the Joneses. Brands, house size, house shape, clothes, Waitrose versus Audi. I don't know. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? If you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, I suggest Jesus is saying he'd rather you run after him. You try and keep up with the Joneses, there'll always be another Joneses to try and keep up with who are bigger and better than those ones. It just gets ridiculous. It's like, why aren't you running after me? Where's your heart? And if you spend your money on one thing more than others, I suggest there's an idol at work in your heart. It's a good reflection. Where does my time go? Where does my money go? See, verse 31 here, Jesus is saying, Seek his kingdom, Father's kingdom, and these things will be added to you. See, 1 Timothy 6, let's turn there, 1 Timothy 6. This is a really helpful demonstration, actually, of what I'm saying here. It's not about how much you have or how much you don't have. It's not that you, all of us here now have to go and wipe out our bank accounts and give it all to the poor. He may ask that of you, but that's not actually what he's saying here to us in general. As a Christian, you're allowed to be rich, but security must not be found in it. And if it's got a grip in your heart, then you need to let it go. So here, 1 Timothy 16, verse, oh, sorry, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, tell them to get rid of it. Is that what he says? No. This is Paul to Timothy, says, as for, the, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's okay to enjoy things and to buy things. It's okay. They, the rich, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If you're ready to share, your heart's in a good place already. See the difference? Thus, therefore, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You're storing up a whole different kind of treasure for the future instead of the one that you think will fix it for you. There's a big paradigm shift there, isn't there? A big, massive difference. Saying, God's got your back. You'll store up something far, far richer than just flipping money. He's got your back because he's Father. So it boils down to trust, doesn't it? Trusting in him, walking with him. See, putting your money in the offering or setting up a direct debit, for example, this is the tenth to the storehouse. It's a good principle to follow still. It's just not the be-all and end-all. Put your money in the offering, setting up a direct debit, that's an act of worship. Isn't it? It's demonstrating where your trust is. Jenny and I, when we first, we backslidden for a while when we first got married, we found the cinema much more fun instead. But after a couple of years, God got hold of us. And uh, when we came back to the Lord, we, for a while we'd been putting £10 every now and again into the offering, feeling better about ourselves because we put something in. And then one day I was watching, I think I was, I was at work at the ambulance station. And back in those days, you had time to sit down and watch a bit of telly. It's a bit different now. And um, Clive Pick was on God TV, I had the old Sky Channel up. And he was talking about giving to God, about generosity of, of heart and honouring God first in your money. And at the same time, I think Jenny had been reading a book on the subject at home and watched the same programme, I think it was. And we both came home. We go, oh, there's something I need to tell you. 
No, no, you first. No, you first. No, there's something I need to tell you. And both of us said to each other, we're not tithing, we need to do something about it. Not because it's about the number, it's about an attitude of heart, about giving the cream of the crop, not the dregs. And we didn't have the money to do it, our budgeting didn't work, but we realised we needed to trust him and do it anyway. We did it, and strangely enough, the numbers added up. God's economy is very different to ours. He's not very good at maths, because it doesn't work out. But it always it's true, but it works out better. See, putting our money in the offering or setting up a direct debit is an act of worship. Not doing that is also an act of worship. Because you're worshipping something else with your money instead. And this is why the Bible keeps coming back to it's about the heart and not about numbers. We're under grace. It's not about the numbers. It is asking very boldly, where's your heart at? Let me tell you a story. There's a guy called Steve Morris. Steve's are good. I like Steve's. They're all right, they are. There's a guy called Steve Morris. He's from our church in uh, Chafford 100, which is a very posh way of saying Lakeside Thurrock. Yes, Chafford, Chafford 100. Um, he visited Cape Town once. There were some contacts out there. went to Cape Town in South Africa, and they realised this intense need there. There were a lot of teenagers who were falling out of the school system and therefore having trouble getting jobs, and therefore poverty was just piling upon, you know, piling upon poverty and so on in these families. And they, there was a need for an educational centre that would help them stay through the schooling system, get qualifications, get a trade, get a job, and help, help them kind of get a step up from poverty, if you like. And he realised this need, and he came home, and it just really burdened him, and he wanted to do what he could to help. It's only the past few years. This education centre, to be built, to, be, to get started, needed £40,000. And um, he was out for a walk once. I think he was walking to the office, and he was just praying. And he said, God, 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 what we need is like a rich businessman. Someone who can just, a rich benefactor, and go, here's the money, and then I can help. I'd love to be involved when I help get this education centre up and running. This would be amazing. It's just really got hope. You've done something in me. There's something in my heart. So we need someone, like a rich benefactor, that kind of thing. So God went, um, how about you? What if you gave me all of the money in your account? And straight away, Steve, in that moment, went, yeah, all right. Then he thought about it. <laughs> and he realised him and his wife had saved up £10,000 for a deposit on the house. Their dream was to get finally not to stop renting, to buy their own house. So they've got a young family. £10,000 for a house. They had it. It's like, what have I done? And then he realised there's a bit of a get-out because God said, all the money in your account. He said, well, I've got a number of accounts. It might mean a different one. £3.75 in it. Then in that moment, he was in this fugue and he suddenly realised, oh, hang on a minute, I just realised what we'd done. A few days ago, they'd amalgamated all their accounts, closed them all down, put all the money in one account, ready to buy a house with. They had one account and it had £10,000 in it. Oh, I promise God. Okay, we'll have to trust him. So, just a little while later, they're working out the whys and wherefores and he came back from that walk and spoke to his wife and straight away she went, I agree. She was like, oh, I was hoping she'd say no and we'd have a bit more wriggle room. So, okay, going with this, very, very short while later, new wine came up. It's a big, another church, national church um, event, a festival every summer. And he went to new wine. And they said, one of our speakers has dropped out tomorrow. We need you to preach. It's like, big pardon? I haven't prepared anything. What am I going to do? They said, just tell us your story. Okay. Forgive me if I start crying. I always do when I tell these stories. That, that morning, he got up and he started preaching. He just told the story about Cape Town. 
started telling him about what was going on in South Africa, the need there, and he felt he, he and his wife, his family, were being called to be a part of making a difference there and to honour God with their money. And he was just telling this story. And while he was preaching, this woman started walking down the front. It's like, okay, maybe she's going to the toilet. She came right up to the front, came right up to the stage. He's trying to not to stutter his words, trying to keep focused on the crowd, and there's thousands there. And she came up to the stage, she put £20 on the stage and walked back. It's like, okay, thank you very much. Lovely. I'm in the middle of a sermon here. I said, well, telling my story here, but don't really know what to do with that, but thank you. Carried on speaking. Some more people started coming up. Some more people started coming up. Cash, notes, notes, notes. A pile of notes at his feet while he was speaking. In a very short space of time. By the time he finished speaking, they had raised £30,400 during that one speak. By that evening, they'd raised £34,000. The youth at the event then realised they should get together and maybe they can do something. They raised £15,000. By the end of the week, they had £55,000 towards this project. 15 over the required target. So they thought, brilliant. We don't need to give our 10000 now. Because <laughs> we've got over and above the 40. You don't actually need it. But no, he prayed about it. Of course he did. And one evening, he went on, online, he transferred the £10,000, it was gone. He went up to read his son or his daughter a bedtime story, and he said, I've never felt such release. It was the right thing. Absolutely at peace. Someone had emailed them a little while beforehand to say, at some point, I'd like to bless you with a gift. Just you personally as a family. Three days later, this guy responded, out the blue, because he'd forgotten about it, with 50% of that money back for them as a family, £5,000. Bosh. God always endorses, God has always got your back for your needs. Not for your Porsche and your mansion, for your needs. But he's got your back. They're now there. The education centre is now up and running. There are kids, I've seen photos and video of these kids. They are thriving. He's moved his whole family out there. They're in Cape Town now. And he came and spoke at New Day a little bit. And this is what he says. He says it wasn't about the money. He said it is what, what we love the most. And for us, it was a house... Or God. Now we can tell these stories and we think it's all right for them. That was one person who God asked to give them, asked them to give him ten thousand pounds. In that story, there are many other people involved who gave twenty pounds. The Morrises, that's not them and their giving to the church every week or every month sorted now for the future because they gave one lump back then. This was over and above. And the people coming forward while he was speaking to give their twenty pounds, their ten pounds, their fifty pounds, whatever it was, five pounds. They're given to the church still. This was over and above. So sometimes for you, it might be £10,000. Sometimes for you, it might be a fiver. All he's asking is, where's your heart? It's not about the number. It's not about the number at all. So what stirs people to do things like this? If you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, why does God ask this kind of thing? For a start, if he's God, he can do his magic and he doesn't need people to give him money. He can magic it up from somewhere and get things running. Why doesn't he do that? Well, it's because it demonstrates a people whose heart is for him. It demonstrates this is more than just some magic Father Christmas Wizard of Oz type character who clicks his fingers and things happen and there's people running around kind of kneeling down and worshipping a statue. This is, that's just a ridiculous cartoon. This is a real father who's raising children, nurturing them, to run after him first and foremost. 
And here's a perfect demonstration of that. As we give up our treasure. Where our treasure is, that's where our heart is. But the reason we do it is because we've been won over and we we realise we're considered as a treasure ourselves. And this is where things click into place. When we recognise this. That song we were singing, Jesus Priceless Treasure, that's based on Matthew 13. Turn to Matthew 13. Verse 44. So that first verse, Jesus priced his treasure. Source of purest pleasure, isn't it? You're my treasure, you're my reward. My spirit sings. My heart adores. This is knowing Jesus as our true treasure, isn't it? Well, let's just read these few verses. 44 to 46. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's worth selling everything to get that field with that treasure in, yeah? And then again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That treasure is worth giving everything else up for. Now on the surface, the question there is, is Jesus your treasure? Are you willing to give up everything for him? If he asks you to give a five, he'll give a five. If he asks you to give £10,000 deposit for a house, you'll give it. Is he your number one? Or is he not? That's on the surface. How much are you willing to give up for him? But actually, that's not what it's saying. Because when you look at the context of this chapter and recognise Jesus is saying these words out of a different context and through different stories, what it's actually saying is, He is the man who gave up everything for the treasure in the field. He is the merchant who sold everything to get that pearl of great price. So then that song, Jesus Price's Treasure, verse 2, talks about what Christ gave up for us. It's got the, Ollie's written the right balance there. The second verse, you go back and look at the words at some point in in the songbooks we've got at home for growth group and that. Recognise that we are his treasure. And what he gave up, he is the king of the universe. He is the king of kings. He is the prince of peace. All heaven is his. He gave that up to come and be a naked, poor baby whose parents couldn't even afford a maternity room, a hotel room. There was nowhere for them. He was in a manger, in a stable. Lived in virtual poverty, had to work for a living, had to learn his father's trade. He gave up such intense majesty to come and live amongst us, to live the life we couldn't lead, and then to die on a cross. It's horrible, pitiful. He sweated blood before he approached that cross. His flesh was ripped from his back, and the agony wasn't in the crown of thorns on his head and where he bled from the nails in his hands and his feet. The agony is in Father having to turn his face away His eternal father to look away and go, the sin's on you and I just can't even look at you, those dirty stains of humanity. He gave up everything to do that, that we might live. We're his treasure. What a difference that makes. And then, if we're his treasure, therefore, it's like this. If someone gave you, ladies, for example, I'm going to be a bit stereotypical now. Ladies, if someone gave you one of these massive great diamond necklaces that you see in the films 
where it comes with a bodyguard. You can only borrow it for a night for a special ball. You know, one of those kind of things. Renee Russo and Pierce Brosnan, she's got a diamond necklace and it's worth millions and millions of pounds. Now, would you be reckless with that? Or would you keep touching it to check it's there? Would you keep looking in the mirror to see the beauty coming off it? Would you relish it and take care over it? Be very careful how you put it back in the box and make sure it gets back to the, back to the bank in time. You'd be careful with it, wouldn't you? And guys and ladies, if you're into cars, if you're given a top-end sports car, or like our cousin, he's got this top-end BMW that's got a holographic display coming up in the dashboard. It's crazy. Do you want to play? Yes, please. If you get given one of those, would you be reckless with it? Would you not care if it gets scratched up the side and you bump it up on the curb? You'd be careful. You'd polish it. You'd be take, make a lot of decisions about where you park it at night. You'd drive it very, very carefully, wouldn't you? So therefore, how much more would our Father watch over us? Would he tend to us? How much more would Jesus, who considers us his treasure, how much more would he make sure he's got your back and that you're protected, that you're safe in him, that you don't need to fear for tomorrow? Now do you see the difference? And therefore, nothing on this planet, nothing you have, nothing you own, nothing you can try to amass can legitimately eclipse his faithfulness. Nothing you have in this life can eclipse his faithfulness. If Jesus is truly our treasure, it gives us a release from the stress and the anxieties for tomorrow. If Jesus is truly our treasure, the world's consuming mass of dissatisfaction means nothing to us. And we are content in all things, when we have much and when we have little. If Jesus is truly our treasure, we don't need to worry about the maths of, is 10% to the church before or after tax? You're asking the wrong question. If Jesus is truly our treasure, we are freed into asking the question, how generous can I be instead? Shall I give him the cream of my crops or shall I give him the dregs? This is not, no longer about giving out of guilt or feeling guilty because you haven't. This is no longer donating out of duty. Instead, it's about releasing out of rejoicing recognising who he is and who we are to him. I'm my beloved and he is mine. We get to release our wealth for his glory to people who need it, to the church, loving people with it, just being generous, knowing either way he's got our back. So I'm just going to ask that question again. Where does your treasure reside? Let's pray. Lord, the amazing truth that not only are you an amazing king who created and sustains this amazing universe, there's such wonders and riches in it, and yet it all came from you. But then to recognise that within that you consider us, your people, a treasure. That within that field, if you like, of the planet, your people are a rich treasure you'd give up everything for to acquire. That amongst all the other pearls on this planet, we, your people, your church, are the pearl of great value, the pearl of great price, and you gave up everything for us. Lord, in light of that, we can only respond one way. We can only respond in gratitude. We can only respond in thanks. We can only respond by asking what you want us to do with your money. 
because it's not our money, it's yours. We thank you that you let us keep some. <laughs> we thank you that you let us enjoy it and enjoy the things of this world until they get a grip on our heart and then you want to have a chat. Lord, just teach us to know where we can be generous. Teach us just to ha- have the, a generous spirit so whenever the opportunity comes up, even if we're not looking for it, our first reaction it is not, I don't know if I've got enough, or but I'd rather. Our first response is, I would love to. Lord, teach us, speak to us, we pray, but we pray that this becomes, even as we reflect on this in the next few days or weeks, Lord, as we reflect on this, this becomes about far more than money and far more about our heart's posture towards you, our great and glorious King. So it's to you we give all the glory. And in these things we pray, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you, everyone. Teas and coffees are now